Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. House Bill 391, the Utah Death with Dignity Act, would allow physicians to prescribe lethal doses of medication to terminally ill persons who desired to end their own lives. That would happen under certain circumstances. Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, Democrat from Salt Lake City, says she sponsored the bill in response to the recent plight of Brittany Menard, a California woman with a terminal brain tumor who moved to Oregon, which has had such a law in place since 1994, so she could die, as she says, on her own terms. A poll by utahpolicy.com shows that 63% of Utahns support such legislation. Today we're going to ask you what you think. You can respond to the program at upraxcess at gmail.com and uh, by phone call at 1-800-826-1495. Our guests the program include Representative Chavez-Hauk. We'll also be talking with medical ethicist from University of Utah, Dr. Samuel Brown and Dr. Margaret Batten. Uh, her professional and personal worlds collided when her husband, University of Utah Professor Brooke Hopkins, faced end-of-life decisions after living for several years as a quadriplegic following a bicycle accident. We'll also be talking with George Amy, Vice President of the Death with Dignity National Center, and with Representative Ed Red, Republican from Logan, who's also a medical doctor. We begin with my conversation from yesterday with Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, uh, the sponsor of House Bill 391. So it's uh, House Bill 391, Utah Death with Dignity Act. Uh, tell me what this would do. Well, basically, um, it uh, echoes or follows this, a similar bill that's been in place in Oregon for the last 17 years. Um, and actually, Washington, by a referenda or initiative, passed uh, legislation that allows them to offer deathless dignity in Washington state back in 2008. And basically what it does is it allows uh, the right of a qualified terminally ill adult, and that's someone who has been diagnosed um, with a terminally ill a terminal illness that will end their life within six months. It allows them to obtain a prescription from their physician for medication that they may choose to administer for a humane and dignified death. Um, there are five states that actually allow this at present. Um, Three, Washington, Oregon, and Vermont, have passed it by legislation or referenda. Uh, New Mexico has one county that allows it, which is really interesting. I don't know quite what the story is on that one. And then Montana is not prohibitive because of, of a court case that permits them to do it. It isn't exactly um, statutorily implemented, but it's um, they have a court case that allows physicians to provide uh, physician aid in dying in this manner. Um, so that's basically it. Uh, so is is this euthanasia? No, it's not. Um, and I would argue that it's not euthanasia because euthanasia is when the physician administers the medication. This is self-administered, self-determined by the patient. So they would get the prescription from their physician, and at the time that they believe that they would like to take it, then they ingest it themselves. Um, it's not... At euthanasia, as we know, it's some, you know, something that's similar to uh, what the Netherlands has made legal is not allowed in the U.S. Uh, so this would uh, this be medication? Would I? I think this would be painkillers, right? The doctor would prescribe a lethal yeah, dose of painkillers. Right. It's a form of secanol, and it's it's in a very high dose. Um, it's usually administered. It's uh, diluted uh, or mixed in in a, in a drink, and then the people uh, drink it. They they ingest it uh, orally uh, as a drink. I believe there there's a waiting period. 
Yes, there is. Basically, what the uh, process requires is that there are two separate requests for medications, um, and they have to be separated by a minimum waiting period of 15 days. Um, uh, some people have, uh, there's a wide range of when people actually ingest the medication. Um, and one thing that people don't know or don't or may not be familiar with is the fact that uh, just because somebody asks for the prescription doesn't mean they necessarily take the the medication. Uh, If you look at 2013 in Oregon, some 122 people asked for the prescription and only about 80 people took the medication. So a lot of times people don't feel necessary. Um, the, The main issue surrounding this is that people just would like to have the option uh, if their pain and suffering becomes interminable and unbearable that they can uh, make this choice and take this option on their of their own accord Um, so there's that 15 days with that separates um, when they get the prescription Um, also what's required as part of this process is that uh, two physicians, both an attending and a consulting physician, have to um, verify that this person is diagnosed with a terminal illness with an anticipated prognosis of dying within six months. Um, and if either one of those physicians feels that the person is coerced or if they're doing this out of, under duress or they're suffering depression or other uh, severe mental illness uh, or they may lack the ability to really understand what they're doing, um, either the, one of those physicians um, must be refer must refer the patient to a, a, a psychiatrist for a mental evaluation, and anywhere along the lines, any of those medical providers can say no. This person uh, shouldn't be afforded this this option because they do not know what they're doing, or there there's other issues at play. This is not of their own volition. Um, and there is a, the the death a death under this law would not invalidate a life insurance policy or annuity uh, because on their the person's death certificate what would be listed as their cause of death is the underlying terminal illness not the fact that they took the medication and um, health care providers are not uh, required or mandate to participate. This is this nothing compels a physician or a pharmacist or anybody uh, to be required to to do this if they choose not to. Is there any one case you're responding to here or or a type of cases that people are terminally ill who are in a lot of a lot of pain. Well, what what what, well, what do you respond I, to? Well, what, what's been very interesting is it's not a particular case that I'm responding to in Utah, but I was uh, compelled by the story that I heard about Brittany Menard, who is a young woman uh, living in California a bit over a year ago, who was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of brain cancer. Um, her prognosis was not good, um, and uh, in doing her research, she knew that her death would be a very a very extremely painful death. Um, she uh, knew that in California that this option was not available to her, so she moved to Oregon with her family. Uh, there is a residency requirement, uh, which in some cases proves challenging for people who want to move to Oregon to do this. Um, and But luckily she was able to, to uh, establish residency in Oregon, and um, she opted to uh, use this option uh, in November of last year. She's re- her story has received a lot of publicity, uh, namely because this is something she felt very strongly about as she was nearing the end of her days, um, that she was, number one, frustrated that she couldn't 
uh, do this in her own home state where she could have been surrounded by additional family and friends, even though her immediate family was with her in Oregon and um, uh, made it a, a, her legacy something that she wanted to do in her final months to uh, work towards ensuring that other states would allow patients to have this option. Um, since then, her husband, uh, Dan Diaz, and her mother have done a lot of work in advocating for uh, implementation and passage of this law in other states. Um, and I'm looking at the list of states that are running legislation similar to ours this year, and it's well over 20 um, additional states that have decided to do this within the last few months. So her message and her story has resonated with people. And um, after I released my bill and after I I made it public, I was hearing from many, many Utahns who uh, thanked me for putting this message forward to having starting this conversation um, and, and have heard from family members who uh, are haunted deeply by the end of days of very beloved love of family members who died horrific deaths. Even with great hospice and palliative care, it just wasn't enough. And um, those stories have been extremely compelling and um I admire those families for stepping forward and saying, we really wish that our loved one didn't have to go through this horrible end, and we're going to do everything we possibly can to help other families and other patients have this option at their prerogative. Have you heard reservations about this from fellow legislators? What what are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a heavy lift, and that's why when I presented it last week in committee, um, I told my colleagues, I know this is going to take some time for us to work through, and let's take it into the interim and have further discussion about it. But I wanted them to hear from the families, and I wanted them to hear from people that have concerns about it. Um, predominantly what I'm seeing is most of the opposition is coming from uh, a number of religious organizations, and uh, I understand and appreciate that and respect that. Um, and there are a number number of health care providers that also feel very strongly about that. I have heard from uh, health care providers um, that uh, that are concerned about the, the legislation, and that's why I've been adamant about telling them that nobody is going to be compelled to do this, and there have, haven't been problems in Oregon. I mean, um, I often invite people to take a look at the studies from from Oregon. Um, There's a Dr. Linda Ganzini who's done extensive evaluation and very um, effective empirical studies on what has happened and what has not happened in Oregon related to concerns that were expressed when they first passed their legislation. Um, So the great thing about this whole situation is we have two, nearly two decades, you know, 17 years of data uh, and information from a state that actually implemented this. And um, I only ask my colleagues and others that have concerns is to look at published uh, medical studies and journals that have reviewed what has happened in Oregon and Washington and in other states uh, before making judgment on this. We've been talking with uh, Democratic Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk. Her House Bill 391 will we'll go into interim. She'll bring it up again uh, uh, next session. It's the Utah Death with Dignity Act. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
Our thanks to Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, who we uh, reached uh, yesterday, and uh, we're talking about the right to die, the Utah Death with Dignity Act, House Bill 391. It uh, will be studied in interim, uh, brought up again, no doubt, next session. But it occasions this uh, conversation on a very important uh, subject. Uh, and uh, Representative Chavez Hawk said she was responding specifically to the uh, the, the situation of uh, the the California woman that we all heard about, uh, Brittany Menard, who moved to Oregon, which has a Death with Dignity Act, so that she could uh, take her own life um, on her own terms, as as she said. Uh, coming up in the uh, program, we're going to be talking with George Amy, Vice President of the Death with Dignity National Center, that's based in Oregon. We'll also be talking with Dr. Samuel Brown at the University of Utah and Dr. Margaret Batten. She has a very interesting story. We were of this, I think, many of us, her professional and personal worlds collided when her husband, University of Utah professor Brooke Hopkins, uh, had a bicycle accident, broke his neck, uh, lived for several years, and then uh, faced some end-of-life uh, decisions. Uh, there, Right now we bring on Representative Ed Redd, a Republican from North Logan. He's also a medical doctor, as we know, and we appreciate him taking some time to be with us. Uh, Dr. Redd, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, so what's uh, what's your opinion on House Bill 391? Is it supportive? Uh, has some problems? What's, what's your opinion? Well, I think it needs a lot of discussion and a lot of vetting. I think it's it, it's an idea that uh, has obviously been you know tried out in other states, and I think uh, we can certainly learn from their experiences and don't have to necessarily reinvent wheels. But I think there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I think, issues in my mind about, you know, what, what it means to, you know, what it means as, as a physician to to decide to participate in, in, in one of these processes. I guess that's that's one of my concerns. Not not that I'd be forced to or any physician be forced to do this, but I think it's, it's a discussion that needs to happen. It's, it, it, it's, a, it's a valid thing we need to talk about during the interim and have you know more than fifteen or twenty minutes of discussion in a typical committee meeting. Mm-hmm. So you're you're glad that this is uh, is going to be studied. I think it's a good idea to study it and understand and fully understand what the implications are, what it, what it really means. Because it's, it's these things get kind of complicated. They, on the surface, they sound like they may be a really great idea, and maybe they are. But but but, but the bottom line is there's lots of uh, potential unintended consequences depending on how the laws written depending on on who's you know who's who's allowed to participate in this and and what the strict criteria are for somebody to participate in this. I mean. I work with uh, people who have mental illness, uh, who have serious bouts of depression, and you can't always tell if a person is depressed just by talking to them across the room for five or ten minutes. And, and there may be people who 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 uh, need treatment for their mental illness rather than than, than, than a, a way out of their life. And I, don't, I, I mean, that's I mean, in, in a situation, where, for example, where somebody has a terminal illness, uh, you know, there, there are options. I've, I've worked as a hospice physician for a number of years. And uh, provided lots of uh, very high-level comfort interventions to try and help people through their dying process, and I feel very grateful that I was able to help them through that very, oftentimes painful and miserable experience. Uh, sometimes I, I've given them enough medication that I've likely shortened their lives, but I gave the medication with the intent of relieving their suffering and their pain, and not with the intent of shortening their life. And so. The outcome may be the same, but the intent may be a little bit different. So it's kind of the whole idea of you know, what is your intent and what are you trying to accomplish by giving people you know, morphine and Ativan and things like that when they're in misery and pain. Well, my goal is to keep them comfortable during a dying process, not necessarily to accelerate the process. But sometimes when we prescribe a large amount of sedative hypnotic medication, 
then our intent is to is to end their life, basically. And I just it, to me, it's like it causes it raises all sorts of kind of flags and problems in my mind about okay, what am I doing here? Uh, what is my intent? So, it's, so I think that so that's the kind of concerns I have. But yeah. Uh, so it, it, it does sound like intent is a is a key line for you. You you you, you prescribe medication to uh, to ease pain, um, and sometimes perhaps that uh, hastens death. But but you would not, as a physician, want to cross that line to uh, prescribing enough for for, for death on well, purpose. Well, right now when I do that, when I'm in that situation, I, I'm not, many times I, I I would be at the patient's bedside watching the response to the medication, saying, "Is this person comfortable or not?" administering more medication until they're comfortable. And if in, the, and if in the consequence of trying to make a person feel comfortable and not be in pain or not be anxious or not be, you know, gasping for air, I actually end up shortening their life. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with doing that because my goal is not, my goal and my, my intention and my purpose for administering medication was to make sure that during a natural dying process, which is a natural process, I am trying to make them as comfortable as possible during that process. But my intention is to make them comfortable, not necessarily to shorten the process, even though I, I, I accept the, the, the reality and the likelihood that sometimes it's going to shorten the process as well. I'm okay with that because my intentions are to help them feel comfortable, not to shorten the process. I'm not going into it up front saying, okay, I want to shorten this process. I'm not doing that. I'm letting nature take its course, but I'm making sure that the patient during the process is as comfortable as they possibly can be. And that's what hospice physicians and nurses do is they, 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 they that during the last hours of life or days of life, oftentimes they're at the bedside 24-7 as a team trying to help this person be as comfortable as possible. Now, with today's uh, medicine and, uh, and today's realities of, uh, uh, of the way we're dying, uh, we have do not resuscitate orders, for example. Uh, yeah. um, and of course, this is, we're, we're trying as a society, right, and as a state to determine where is the line. Well, and it's, and, it's, and it's not black and white. I can tell you this right now. I, I greatly admire, you know, your representative, Shadow Talk. I mean, she's bringing, she's bringing forth a very complicated and difficult concept and idea and allowing it to be vetted in the public, you know, the public arena. And I, and I admire her for that, but, but I really do have some concerns about, you know, what is our intent? Because right now we have really good hospice services, uh, and if they're functioning right and the hospice team is doing their job, most people, the vast majority of people, can be allowed to be comfortable during a natural dying process, and, and, and nobody in that team needs to accelerate that process or purposely accelerate that process. And so it, it kind of like, you know, whether, whether it's the right or wrong thing to do is, 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 is certainly, you, can, you know, whether, whether it's, you know, there's all sorts of morals and ethics and all sorts of questions about this when you start talking about it. But the bottom line is I still think having a discussion is valuable, I think people, you know, having a public discussion will certainly open up a lot of people's eyes and, and make it, you know, if there's nothing else, will help the hospice people, uh, help other people understand what hospice really is. Mm. Uh, and, and personally, I, I've been through this with, you know, literally hundreds of patients, and uh, and I've, I've seen what happens, and I'm very proud of the fact that I've been able to help people have a better experience during what otherwise would be an extremely difficult time in their lives. Not that it's still not difficult. But I think, you know, a hospice team that's doing their job and doing what they're supposed to do uh, can be pretty successful at helping people be comfortable during the final phases of their life. Um, maybe some hospice teams aren't succeeding in that as well as they need to, but I think, I think it can happen. And, and I think uh, that's, that's just been my experience providing hospice care. 
Now, part of this, of course, an important uh, critical aspect of this is uh, patient control, person's control over their the end of their life, right? And and uh, yeah. so that's 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 the line we're talking about. As a physician, what do you, what do you think about that? Some you know someone like uh, Brittany Menard who moved to to yeah, Oregon so because she wanted she wanted control. All the specifics of her particular detail or her particular life. Sorry, I'm going to come in one place right here. But my thoughts are, is, is, is again. People have different perspectives on this, and some people are okay with, uh, you know, some people are okay with physician-assisted suicide, some people are okay with euthanasia, uh, and some people aren't. Uh, and, and I guess the question in that situation, uh, you know, is, is it the proper role of government to be involved in those kinds of, you know, uh, perspectives in people's lives? And I, and I think that's another part of the discussion, and that's why it really does need to be discussed. So finally, what are what key points are you looking at in terms of critical areas that need to be discussed in depth as the, this idea moves to interim and before it's brought back up before the legislature? Well, I think I think a couple of things. I think you know, I think it's it's really in my mind it's kind of great uh, when a, when a physician writes a prescription and gives it to a patient with the intent of shortening that person's life. Uh, I think it's really important that if, if that's what the physician's going to do and we're going to make that legal, then I think we need to make sure that the patient does this in a very informed manner, that the patient is, is not being manipulated into the situation by a government agency, for example, or a hospice team, but the person actually, um, you know, some of us have different opinions, and I think it's important that the person that makes that decision comes to that decision uh, in a very informed, open dialogue way and is not some way coerced or encouraged or, you know, are doing it for other reasons besides the fact that, that, that's, that that's their choice. You know, and that, that's my biggest concern is that this can be manipulated by third parties, whether it's family members uh, that are tired of taking care of their loved ones, whether it's a hospice team that has their own agenda or has their own viewpoints on this. I think it's really important that, that if this is going to happen, and I'm not saying it should, I'm just saying if it's going to happen, I think it's really important that uh, the person making that decision has absolutely zero, is able, number one, fully, fully mentally aware and has full, full mental faculty to make that kind of a decision. And number two, is not being coerced by a, a family member or a third party or being encouraged by a family member or third party to do that. Uh, and, and, and then, again, the whole ethics of it, uh, you know, I still have a lot of heart run over that one. Uh, you, know, you know, what am I doing here? Can I really not help this person be comfortable through the typical standard hospice uh, mechanisms and tools that we have with medications? Do I really have to write a prescription designed to be taken all at once with the outcome of certain death? I mean, that to me is kind of physician assist. You know, the physician didn't miss the medication. The physician wrote the prescription with the intent of that happening. So that, that raises all sorts of kind of red flags in my mind. So I think. I think that's something that needs to be discussed and fully vetted before we take any sort of action on this one way or the other. Well, thank you. Uh, Ed Red is a representative, a uh, Republican from uh, North Logan. He's also a medical doctor. Uh, interesting perspective on this House Bill 391, Utah Death with Dignity Act, which has been tabled and will be studied further. We're going to talk further about this uh, following a break. Uh, representative Red, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
And uh, coming up following a break, we'll continue the discussion with George Amy, who's vice president of the Death with Dignity National Center. We'll also be talking with uh, Dr. Samuel Brown, a medical doctor at the uh, University of Utah, and Dr. Margaret Batten, who's a philosopher and bioethicist. Uh, More following this break. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. Millennials generally like their smartphones and the conveniences of modern life. Do not get them started, though, on processed foods. Somebody else made it, don't eat it. Generally, you'll be happier if you cook all your food from scratch. I'm Kai Rizdal, the generation that's trading convenience for nutrition. Next time on Marketplace, we'll have the rest of the day's business news and the numbers from Wall Street as well. It's all from 8 p.m. Wednesday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Utah's famous work of land art, the Spiral Jetty, was completed in 1970. A few short years later, the artwork was inundated with the rising waters of the Great Salt Lake and stayed mostly submerged for 30 years. This year, the historically low level of the lake is providing a great opportunity to see the Spiral Jetty. This is Jennifer Pemberton. I went to the Spiral Jetty for the first time this year, but I want to know what your visit was like. I'm collecting your Spiral Jetty stories for the March 27th episode of The Source. Go to upr.org to submit your story or come talk to me in person. I'll be at the Spiral Jetty Story Booth after the next Science Unwrapped presentation. That's Friday, March 20th at Utah State University. Details about that event are also at upr.org. Thanks for sharing your story. Congratulations to Alvin Hange, head of Utah State University's Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry, on his achievement of the 2015 D. Winethorne Careers Research Award. The award is the institution's top research honor. UPR congratulates Alvin Hange, recipient of the 2015 D. Winethorne Careers Research Award. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about House Bill 391, the Utah Death with Dignity Act, which would allow physicians to prescribe lethal doses of medication to terminally ill persons who desire to end their own lives uh, under their own uh, 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 terms, I guess that's how you would phrase it. This would happen under certain circumstances. Representative Chavez Hauk says she sponsored the bill in response to the recent plight of Brittany Menard, a California woman with a terminal brain tumor who moved to Oregon so she could die on her own terms. Oregon has had a uh, Death with Dignity Act in place, law in place since 1994. By the way, a new poll from utahpolicy.com shows that 63% of Utahns support such legislation. We're asking you what you think. And uh, we have a comment from Kylie and Moab by email. We'll get to that uh, shortly. You can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We'd love to know what you think. Perhaps you have an experience, a family member or such. Uh, you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. And so we bring in, for the second half of the program, uh, George Amy, who is vice president of the Death with Dignity National Center. Mr. Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you. And, uh, Mr. Amy, I understand that you served in the Oregon legislature. I don't know if you were there in 94 when uh, 
when when this uh, initiative was passed, but I, I think you were certainly there for the fights that followed. I was there from '93 to '99. Okay, and uh, then you have gone on to uh, to serve, uh, as I understand it, executive director of Compassion uh, for uh, dying in Oregon, which later became Compassion and Choices in Oregon, and uh, yes, helped. Yes, did that for 12 years. As, okay, uh, executive director, um, and then after uh, leaving. That organization, I retired and became uh, active with Death of Dignity National Center. Okay. And I speak across the country uh, about our experience. Very good. We'll want to want to hear about that experience. We also uh, bring in a philosopher, bioethicist, uh, Dr. Margaret Batten, uh, who we referenced uh, earlier, whose uh, professional and personal worlds uh, collided. We'll want to hear her, her story. And it, before even that, she has a long career studying end-of-life uh, issues. Uh, she's at the University of Utah. And uh, welcome I'm to the program. To be here. Uh, thank you. We also uh, bring in uh, Dr. Samuel Brown. He's a medical doctor. He's at the uh, University of uh, Utah. And uh, uh, he is uh, involved in... Uh, He's assistant director of critical care at uh, echocardiography at uh, Intermountain Medical Center, and uh, he's an NIH-funded researcher studying the body's response to life-threatening infections, also a medical humanist and ethicist, special interest in embodiment, sickness, and end-of-life. Uh, so, uh, uh, Dr. Brown, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you. Uh, so let me uh, let me get in uh, Kylie's comment here, and then and then we'll uh, launch into the discussion. Of course, very important issue. We've heard from Representative Chavez Hawk and Representative Ed Red on this. Kylie and Moab says the rest of the country should follow in Oregon's footsteps. We should not be forced to stay in a dying, painful body, staying alive with drugs. We put our animals to sleep when they're in pain and dying, which is more humane treatment than we give ourselves. This is big government controlling our lives and infringing on our freedoms. We should have this right. So Kylie and Moab is in favor of this. We'd love to know what you think. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll also be monitoring Twitter where you can find us at Utah Public Radio. I'd like to begin with uh, with Dr. Batten. Um, and and I, I think a lot of us are aware of, of the story of your husband, Brooke Hopkins. I wonder if you'd share that with us again in, in brief and, and then we'll get into some of the issues that he faced. Very quickly, uh, my husband, Brooke Hopkins who is an English professor at the University of Utah, and a tremendously um, healthy and athletic uh, man was cycling downhill in City Creek Canyon here in Salt Lake uh, several years ago, and uphill was coming a bike racer. They collided around a blind corner, and my husband broke his neck. The other guy wasn't hurt at all. That meant uh, quadriplegia, uh, dependence on a ventilator, uh, and he flourished for a, a number of years, <clears throat> both after several years in the hospital and then several more years at home. But after many <clears throat> setbacks and a downhill course medically, he came to the conclusion that it was time to die. So he asked, <clears throat> excuse me, to have his ventilator removed, which he had the legal right to do. Uh, he's, his physician and the hospice physician were both aware of this, both evaluated him uh, extremely carefully to make sure that he wasn't being pressured, that this was a fully reasoned um, and thoughtful and personal choice. And then his ventilator was disconnected. I was able to lie by his side while 
that happened. Uh, and that death was a death that I see is right on the cusp between the old way we used to die, where one is kept going no matter what until the end um, occurs, and a future in which we have a greater role in determining the character of his own deaths. Now, because he had medical equipment that was sustaining his life to discontinue, his death was a perfectly legal choice for him. But had he not had that, uh, he would be in the situation of most people who die and who face difficult deaths. And there's people dying of cancer or various kinds of organ failure where there is nothing to discontinue. And so it, to assure a, an easier, gentler death, some kind of um, help with managing suffering, pain, shortness of breath is necessary. Now, we treasure hospice. Indeed, hospice was involved in the death that my husband died. Uh, and hospice is able to mitigate the symptoms in a vast majority of cases, but not all, right? And that's what, partly what this bill is about, is that fraction of cases where it's not possible to control not only pain but other symptoms um, that are um, extremely um, uh, difficult. Mm. It's about choosing how you want your death to go, given that it's inevitable anyway. So I see it as, a, as an issue of basic liberty. Mm -hmm. right? I also see it as an issue of protection for the physician, who is often put in an um, impossible situation where he or she isn't able to fully control the um, sufferings of a patient, or where the patient wants to um, avoid the worst of those sufferings, but the rhetoric of not intending to cause death means that the physician and the patient can't openly discuss this matter together. They can't say, we see that death is coming. Let us think together about how to meet this in the way that's most agreeable, most is closest to what, to what you, the patient, would want. After all, you know, when we think about this issue, we typically think about other people. Would they manipulate each other? Would this doctor pressure that patient? Would this um, insurance company shortchange uh, this person? Would a family member be abusive? But we should think about this also as about ourselves. Is every single one of us, everyone in this discussion, every listener out there on the radio, every one of us will die. Most of us will die deaths with long downhill courses. That's characteristic of the developed world. So somewhere around a quarter to a third of deaths are from cancer. Uh, another quarter to a third are deaths from various kinds of organ failure. Uh, rapid 
deaths, instantaneous deaths with no warning are actually quite the minority. So we need to think about what we, that is I, what would I want if I were facing a death like this? Well, I don't know until I get there. This is something each of us could say. I don't know until I get there what I actually will want when the time comes, but I'd like to have the insurance, the comfort, that if things begin to go badly, if I can see that nothing is able to treat the suffering that I endure, I'd like to have the insurance that I could have and work with my doctor to ensure an easier death. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I want to turn to Dr. Brown, uh, and um, I don't know if you were able to hear part of the conversation with Dr. Red. Uh, but he, he, he's expressed, you know, he's willing to think about this, and, and he's glad it's, this bill is going to interim committee to be studied. It sounds like he has real reservations uh, about uh, intentionally, you know, the, the intent behind prescribing a lethal dose of, dose of medication to uh, to a, to a patient, even though he's worked in palliative care and in hospice. Um, I, I wonder if you share those, as a medical doctor, share those reservations. You know, I started actually in favor of physician-assisted suicide some years ago, uh, I think primarily because I'm a fairly typical, uh, well-educated, liberal, you know, progressive individual. And I, I have to confess that as I've spent more time, I founded the Center for Humanizing Critical Care that was trying to get at some of the core issues that rob people of their dignity when their life is threatened. And I tried to really think carefully through these issues and read quite broadly in the philosophical and ethical literature behind that. And I confess that as I have spent more time studying it, I've become more convinced that it is uh, an incorrect framing of the problem, uh, if you will. It's the it's an answer to the wrong question, and uh, relies on a variety of um, of ways of thinking about this issue that have allowed our very real uh, fear of death and dying to make it harder for us to think clearly. So uh, I would say that, uh, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't get streaming to work, so I wasn't able to hear the oh, whole okay. conversation uh, before uh, I came on. But I'm extremely sympathetic to uh, reservations that people have about crossing the line between uh, killing and allowing to die. and. Uh, there's been thousands of pages written in the philosophical literatures around this key question uh, that I think really does need to come uh, up clearly. For instance, the listener from Moab and Dr. Batten have both been invoking a broad concern about not uh, mutilating or deforming the process of dying, and that is something that we did wrongly. Uh, we did terribly from about... 1920 until really the 1990s. We in American culture tended to lock the dying in a room if there was no procedure uh, to do on them, didn't tell them what was going on, didn't treat their pain, didn't acknowledge who they were, didn't try to help them find a way through the maze. 
And if there was a procedure to do, then we did the procedure uh, up until the bitter end, and people were thought to not be uh, allowed to die until uh, you know, CPR and invasive surgeries had been done long since they had been robbed by medical technology of their capacity to uh, meaningfully participate in life and in the dying process. And that's changed, and that's a wonderful uh, development. And my sense is that that has all been a part of learning to not uh, reject death entirely. And I think that's important because, as Dr. Batten said, and as I think we all know, you know, unless you believe in the rapture and you're one of the lucky few that lives in the right place when the rapture comes, we will all die. So given that reality that we will all die, a, a society that's based on the entire rejection of death cannot be a healthy society. My concern is that the physician-assisted suicide movement and much of the legislation becomes a rejection of dying. It's commonly framed in, in language that invokes our strong reluctance to have the state involved in personal uh, decision-making. It commonly invokes language about control, but in a very complex way, uh, but I think still an important one, this becomes a rejection of dying. Because what we're, what we're proposing, remember the fact that we're all dying means that we all have a terminal illness. We may not know its name yet, but we all ultimately will die. So the decision about how close we are to death before we ask for society to agree with us that the rest of life ought not to be lived, and in fact so strongly ought not to be lived, that we would like uh, the state or society to sanction uh, a decision that we make under complex circumstances, not only to stop fighting, not only to stop using medical technologies to try to prolong life, but actually to actively end life. The question is, at what point does the fact that we are mortal, or does our awareness of our being mortal, mean that we want the state to say yes, and, and you know, the state represented by physicians, the state represented by legislatures, yes, we agree with you, it is time for you to to commit suicide, not not just to stop using medical technologies to prolong life beyond what you think makes sense, but to actually actively end that life. And and I I'm so sympathetic to the people that struggle with this, and I and I believe that the people in the midst of these experiences, and frankly, the people who strongly advocate physician-assisted suicide are good and moral and kind and intelligent people. And I think it's important for us as we work through these discussions to remember that. But fundamentally, the deeper I get into it, the, the more I feel like this is a way of rejecting dying. And we've, we've heard several times discussions about the role of community, and I think it's important to have those discussions. The, the last little bit I heard from the legislator uh, suggested that he worried about the influence of the community. And Dr. Batten, I think, very eloquently reminded us that questions about community are also questions about the individual. I think the reality is that our community, particularly our contemporary American community, has so many messages 
about the unworth or the indignity of being weak or frail or tired or dependent or ugly or old, that it is extremely difficult for an individual to be able to call from that individual's core unfettered, uncoerced, unswayed by the millions of mixed messages that are sent by society. And those messages all combine to provide the context in which people decide it's better for me to be dead now through my active taking of my own life with state sanction for that and with their assistance and facilitation with that. Suicide's already legal. It's, it's really a question and has been for years. It's a question of whether the state through physicians and other mechanisms should sanction suicide and should facilitate it. So mm. it, with all these mixed messages telling people that it's extremely difficult to find meaning and flourishing and healthfulness and dignity in the process of dying, I, I, I have such a hard time imagining that the systems uh, that can be put in place or that have been put in place in Oregon or other places are adequate to eliminate the effects of those million mixed messages that people hear about the indignity of being frail or dependent or weak. When you look at the data on the actual use of the physician-assisted suicide legislation uh, opportunities in the places where it's legal, the large majority of people are coming to this decision not because they have intractable pain. It's because they have come to believe that life, the tail end of life, when a great deal of beautiful things can happen, is associated with too much dependence, too much loss of what they previously uh, enjoyed in the full possession of their faculties. And uh, that not a medicine for that. You can't give someone a pill and say, there, we can find meaning together in this weakness. The answer to that is a community rallying and support. And I think it's so much more important right now in our contemporary culture that we be having hard discussions about expanding the hospice benefit about providing tax breaks for people to take time off work for uh, for care of, of dying relatives, about developing and extending systems for us to provide the supports that people need as they face these difficult transitions in their lives. And, and I think providing a mechanism for the state to say, look, you know, this is this is an autonomous decision ignoring the million mixed messages that are driving it in a particular direction. You know, our options are to spend a lot of money and a lot of time trying to heal the dying process, or we can provide a mechanism for state sanction and assistance with suicide. So I, I think we're, we're in this situation where we've got a false dichotomy where our fear of death and dying are causing us to not think clearly as a society. And frankly, I think, I, I think all of us will agree that we have a, a crisis, an ongoing crisis in America, uh, by which 
death and dying have become unbearable for uh, many people. And the question is how to go about solving that. And, and again, with great respect for the people who uh, differ with me on this topic, I think the solutions are about healing those million mixed messages and about providing greater resources for people that are facing the end of their lives rather than uh, the physician-assisted suicide statute. Okay. Uh, if, you, if you just uh, joined us, so we're talking about a potential Utah Death with Dignity Act. It's House Bill 391. This has been tabled for further discussion, but uh, we're taking this as an opportunity to discuss this very important issue. And uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Margaret Batten and uh, Dr. Samuel Brown from University of Utah. And we're going to bring in George Amy, who's vice president of the Death with Dignity National Center. We'd love to know what you think. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Perhaps you have a personal experience, a family member, a friend. Uh, upraxis at gmail.com is another way to reach us. Upraxis at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. We'll alert our guests if you're able to stay a little past the top of the hour to give a fuller uh, uh, discussion uh, to this uh, topic and uh, alert our listeners as well. Let's turn to uh, George Amy. Um, you've heard um, several arguments uh, put forward by uh, Dr. Brown. Uh, he has uh, some reservations about uh, you know, state sanction of a, a person's decision to uh, end, end their life. What, uh, what, do you, what do you say? Well, I appreciate uh, their comments and their concerns. Uh, we attempted to address all of those back in the early 90s uh, when this issue first came up. And first of all, uh, we do not believe it is a state sanction. Uh, it is uh, simply giving immunity to physicians who wish to address their patients' concerns. And all of the comments Dr. Brown made with regard to his concerns, uh, <clears throat> frankly, uh, we did make a difference in Oregon when it came to passing the law because uh, the comments that he made regarding uh, how we need to have better hospice care, better end-of-life care, all were addressed, and we now have that in the state of Oregon. And now, because we were the first state, it has spread throughout the United States, and we appreciate that, just simply because we began that issue. There are already in the spectrum of end-of-life issues state-authorized actions such as total sedation, which is generally done by religious institutions. There is voluntarily stop eating and drinking, which uh, ends one's life uh, before uh, the underlying illness would take it. There, we have found with our data that, uh, first of all, this law enhances living. It does not necessarily make one a death culture. Uh, I have, over my 12 years as executive director and the last four years in this organization, found that all of the concerns that were first expressed by Dr. Brown have been addressed and all other concerns that he didn't even express have been addressed. First, the data. The data shows <clears throat> that the majority of these people are highly educated, they are well aware of their life expectancies. They do not believe they are committing suicide because as we think of suicide traditionally, it is done by a severely depressed or mentally incompetent individual who, uh, generally speaking, is healthy uh, and wants to die. The 
people who use this law uh, are terminally ill. Their life expectancy is within six months. They would love to live life to its fullest, if at all possible, and they are mentally competent when they make these decisions. They, I can assure you, having worked with over 1,600 people who contacted me in my 12 years, every one of them would love to live life as long as possible, and they do. By the evidence, those a third or more of those individuals who receive the medication do not take it, but having received it, they find great comfort in knowing that if worse comes to worse, this is available to them. And the issue of coercion uh, that is always raised, we have found in all my years that it is exact opposite. It's the family members, the loved ones, the friends who keep saying, please, please take one more chemo, one more radiation, one more trip to Mexico or wherever because a miracle could happen and we could find something to solve the problem. When it's the loved one, the dying person, who says, please, I have suffered enough. Uh, Suffering is okay if at the end of which you've accomplished a goal. And I can tell you that uh, these people do not see that they are accomplishing a goal, living life to its fullest. However, because they have this opportunity, they surround themselves with their loved ones and are able to make their goodbyes. And the study done by Dr. Linda Ganzini at the Oregon Health Sciences University of individuals whose loved ones died without taking medication and those who used Oregon's law showed that the family members of those <clears throat> who uh, survived someone who used the law had a uh, briefer period of grief and their memory of the dying process was one of joy because they were able to be with their loved one for a long period of time and say their goodbyes. Mm. So the data accumulated in 17 years now continues to show, and now in eight years or seven years in, in Washington, continues to show that if no one, if no one ever used this law, it would be worth having it on the books because of the comfort and peace of mind that it provides for thousands and thousands of people facing imminent death. And that people do not choose it uh, because they're suicidal or because they don't value the quality of life that they have. They choose it because they know that with death being imminent and the continuing suffering is unacceptable to them. And it's a few people. So to say that we should ban it for the few people because it is only a few people or because it sends a message across the country is incorrect. The compassion that we show to these individuals to saying that they have the right to make the decision and it's not the state stepping in and sanctioning it. They're simply saying, you have the right to make your own decision. 
the other data shows that the relationship between the physician and the patients in the states of Oregon, Washington, and Vermont have improved because of the existence of the law. Conversations are longer. Decisions with regard to treatment, decisions of enrollment in hospice care or palliative care have all improved because of the existence of the law. And when somebody raises the question, doctor, will you assist me in using Oregon's death with dignity law, immediately the physician says, what can I do to make your suffering acceptable or your continued living acceptable? So they immediately start looking for answers to address this person's concerns, and it does not necessarily mean that they will go forth and use the law. As you know, over 95% of the individuals are enrolled in hospice, so they're receiving the type of end-of-life care that is necessary for them, and it's twice the national average. So in conclusion, I would say uh, we addressed all of these. We had some of the same concerns that have been expressed by Dr. Brown and others, and we have addressed those in the law by protecting the vulnerable, from um, preventing coercion, from making sure the process is one of an intelligent decision, an informed consent with the two-week, the 15-day waiting period, the two orals, the one written. All of these things were put in the law to address these concerns, even the concerns of the disabled who said that uh, it denigrated their existence. We placed a provision in the law that said no one can use the law solely based upon a disability. They must have two doctors say their prognosis is six months or less and that they're mentally competent. So uh, I appreciate the expressions of concern, but what I've done as I've traveled across the country, is found out that the same arguments in the very in the, all the other states is the same that we heard back in '93 and '94 and '97 in the states of Oregon, and we addressed those, and they have been addressed. and And I cannot understand why data is not being accepted when we have accumulated and had done 22 studies by Dr. Linda Ganzini, who, who is an independent researcher, has done study after study on, the, on this issue, and it's come up that the law works, and it works well without any flaws. Uh, and, uh, and it's something I believe in very passionately, and I think it provides a way for individuals to face the end of life, to live it to its fullest. That's uh, uh, George Amy. He's vice president of uh, Death with Dignity National Center. As you can tell, this is a big topic, and uh, we are going a bit over the top of the hour. If you've tuned in for Living on Earth, we'll be going to that shortly. Uh, try to get there in about six minutes. I want to go around our panel again, give uh, each uh, member of our panel uh, just a couple of minutes uh, for some uh, final words. And uh, so as we, we go back to... Uh, Dr. Batten, uh, I'm interested in your response to uh, objections you often hear to 
to, to provisions, death of dignity, acts right to die, uh, are, are framed in religious terms, right? To, uh, dying is in God's hands, death should be natural, and uh, for, for some religious people, uh, suicide, however you frame it, is, is wrong. Well, it, <clears throat> certainly this law would not in any way affect the choices made by people who are religious. Uh, in some religious tradition, suffering is uh, held to be a value at the end of life. It's, uh, um, in a way, um, a sort of trial that opens the way to uh, a better afterlife. Nothing in this law would preclude pe- uh, people from choosing to endure suffering. In fact, many of our practices uh, at uh, quelling suffering seem to have the same effect of uh, blocking that choice. That choice remains open. This is entirely about individual choice and that we needn't expect to all die in the same way. We needn't all make the same choices. So someone who chooses to um, forego or preclude suffering, uh, serious suffering at the end of life, that choice needs to be respected just as well as the religiously motivated choice to um, endure to sustain suffering out of um, loyalty to one's um, uh, religious commitments. So it's if we're thinking about religious freedom, this law assures it, it what it doesn't do is allow the religious commitments of one group to determine how somebody how how your death goes right so that's your choices are may be governed by religious concerns or may not be or different from uh, a, a dominant tradition but the respect for religious choices is still part of this uh, let me uh, get in this uh, tweet, um, and you can get in a quick comment here if you'd like, and continue the, the discussion, of course, after the program at upr.org. Uh, we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. This is Joe. He says, I thought Republicans were all about letting people choose. They should gather some facts about Oregon system and not guess. It sounds like uh, he is in favor of a, of a provision like uh, Representative Chavez Hawks, uh, House Bill 391. Um, so let me go next to, to Dr. Brown. Uh, I'd be curious uh, in just a couple of minutes, uh, your response to, uh, to George Amy's, uh, you know, rebuttal of some of your arguments about uh, he, he's saying the experience over 17 years in Oregon uh, has been very positive. The messages sent are, are positive. And, uh, and, and, you know, some of the reservations that you had, he says, are, have not appeared there. Yeah, I, I, again, I I want to communicate clearly my great respect for the compassion and wisdom and goodness of the of the people with whom I disagree on this topic. Um, I, I think the issue is that uh, there's a kind of is-ought fallacy that's at play uh, and then some natural misunderstanding of the nature of evidence that happens when uh, I hear reports that the data demonstrate uh, that the Oregon system uh, works uh, perfectly and answers the kinds of questions that are at play. I've read, uh, I've read the uh, Oregon statute. I've read the literature around the Oregon statute. And I think as long as you make the assumption that the Oregon system works well, then all of the data uh, perfectly support that uh, 
conclusion. It's that typical confirmation bias that we talk about. Uh, if you're skeptical of it for conceptual reasons, then the data uh, end up being uh, a single experience before after, which is one of the lowest uh, levels of adequate scientific evidence, and become a kind of, of uh, again, an exercise in confirmation bias. I think the fundamental question is whether the absolutely important goals of recovering uh, beauty and power and dignity and dying and death uh, can be met by other means or require the presence of these kinds of statutes to happen. And the data simply don't answer that question. Uh, and um, it, saying, saying that they do doesn't uh, make it so. The, the fundamental question is whether there are ways for us to work through this without uh, crossing over uh, what I think is uh, really an important and ubiquitous distinction between killing and letting die. And I, I appreciate uh, Dr. Batten's observation that this fundamentally not ought, ought not to be a story about uh, whether a religious group or a group of religious groups can legislate the morality of others. And I think part of the reason that we've had an impoverished discussion on this topic is because it's tended to be framed in terms of the religious right versus everybody else, which is why I've tried in my comments and in my own thinking to uh, be very distinct from the pro-life religious right sensibilities, because I think that Dr. Batten's argument is correct. If, it, if what it comes down to is a battle of uh, religious uh, versus another religious worldview, we've enshrined in our Constitution uh, protections of religious minorities from religious majorities. Uh, the problem, though, is I think that we've inadvertently let ourselves become pawns in a culture war so that we're unable to see these broader truths about the importance of maintaining that distinction between killing and letting die. And, that, you know, there's a lot of philosophical writing that there's no distinction. But it, it, when you look at any other segment of society, any other kind of moral problem, everyone's quite comfortable with the distinction and, you know, we don't think of ourselves as murderers of malnourished children in Africa, even though, uh, frankly, if we donated $100 a month, we could save some lives. So, and, and there's a fair bit of philosophical writing there. So I think fundamentally it's a question about a million tiny mixed messages that even in the face of protests to do more chemotherapy, even with the competency standards which are applied, which are very low standards for evaluating uh, the true autonomy and self-determination uh, that's at play, in, in play, even if you restrict uh, the use of this uh, approach from people who have active psychological illness, I, I, I think that you've created a very low standard for assuring that this is a, free, a freely chosen uh, decision independent of these million tiny mixed messages, uh, and then you are able to demonstrate compliance with that very low standard. I, I think it's so much more important for us to be doing way more than is currently available in hospice in terms of support of individuals, but, but not actively suggesting that when you decide it is time for you to die. Uh, and, and I think the fact that the advocates of this are uncomfortable with the notion of suicide is a, re is a reflection of the difficulty that we have 
thinking about what these mixed messages are that we're processing. And I, I don't remotely mean by the use of suicide to suggest that a person is mentally ill for hoping to exercise or, or to make that decision. I think that's an important point that, that really does need to be made, that people who are facing the end of their lives are not, by choosing uh, to end their lives, uh, actively therefore mentally ill. And so I think that's absolutely important to uh, keep in mind. But but it remains uh, the fact that um, in, in a world where people were fully and well supported without these million mixed messages saying there is nothing to be gained from further life uh, that exists simultaneously with this passionate refusal of death that we hear from the family members advocating for more chemotherapy, I, I think we'll find that this is a this is not actually a deep expression of individual liberty, uh, but but is right. uh, risking us getting pull, pulled into the confusing uh, rhetoric of the culture wars. Let's uh, before we go to um, George, Amy for final words. I, I think Dr. Batten uh, had a response on on this idea of mixed messages. Well, I, I certainly agree with um, Dr. Brown, who's my colleague in the uh, Division of Medical Ethics, uh, that the um, matter of mixed, mes- mixed messages is very real. This is, um, um, he was uh, quite eloquent about these, but it's important to remember that these mis- mixed messages operate on every choice we make in healthcare and at the end of life. So whether one is um, refusing further treatment or asking for um, certain kinds of uh, life-prolonging treatment to be discontinued or um, uh, requesting DNR, uh, DNI orders, or any of the end-of-life strategies, the same messages apply to those. Uh, I certainly agree with him that there is much, much more we could do to make dying better, but I think he is um, not correct in assuming that um, uh, it's only if one continues life to the bitter end that a great deal of beautiful things can happen even with this law and with people who use this law, because they are able to be open about it, open with their physicians, open with their family members, open with their friends and associates, uh, as Brittany Maynard was, that beautiful things still happen. They happen in uh, circumstances where the person is still alert enough, uh, alert in order to be able to interact with family members and friends, um, with religious advisors and um, others who are important. This doesn't prevent beautiful things from happening at the end of life. And it might be said from what I understand that it often facilitates it when both the person and the family members know that uh, the person in question has come to the sense that this is the moment uh, at which life shall conclude, given that it can't continue indefinitely in any case. So I respect a lot of what Dr. Brown says, but I think he um, is wrong about certain assumptions. Uh, And furthermore, the assumption that this should be called suicide, the law explicitly states that it is not to be construed as a suicide for any legal purpose. Uh, and it has nothing in common with what we ordinarily think of as uh, suicide. 
Well, uh, we're, we're wanting to uh, wrap this up, so we'll uh, we'll leave the, our discussion now, and we'll give uh, George Amy the last word. The trade-off here is uh, need to be a brief uh, last word. What uh, what do you say, George Amy? Very quickly. Uh, first of all, I would encourage Dr. Brown to read uh, all of the studies that Dr. Linda Ganzini uh, <clears throat> prepared over the last uh, 15 years on this issue, and you will find that even if you ignore organs data, you will find that she has addressed many of your issues and uh, has put it on a philosophical and psychological plane that is uh, uh, very well written. Finally, just one quick comment of the thousands of people that I uh, met over the years. Uh, my first case where a wife was uh, going to shoot her husband in the end because he was in such suffering and she was going to subject herself to a uh, <clears throat> criminal charges when he was eligible to use the law. And at the end, he took the medicine, it's a liquid, and he said the journey has been the best journey he's ever had, but it was too short. However, he would not change it for anything. When he died, his wife turned to me and said, you saved two people today. You saved my husband from the continued suffering that he was enduring, and you saved me from going to jail. And as I've said, if it never is used, it provides the comfort and peace of mind that is given to thousands of people. And on a philosophical plane, I believe that in and of itself is uh, well worth having it on the books. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and uh, it's been a great discussion. Thank you so much. Much more could be said, obviously. We'll uh, likely revisit this on a future program, and we'd love the discussion to continue, and you can do that on our website, upr.org, or on our email, upraccess at gmail.com. 